Section 103 of The Mysteries of London, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gillian Hendry. The Mysteries of London, Volume 3 by George W. M. Reynolds. Carlton House. We are now about to relate an incident which, at present, may appear to have little to do with the thread of our narrative, but which we can assure our readers will hereafter prove of immense importance in the development of the tale. On the evening of that day when the innocence of Mr. Torrance was proclaimed, as related in the preceding chapter, King George the Fourth gave a grand entertainment at Carlton House. This splendid mansion was that monarch's favourite residence, not only when he was Prince of Wales and Regent, but likewise while he wore on his unworthy brow the British diadem. Execrable as the character of this unprincipled voluptuary and disgusting debauchee notoriously was, he unquestionably possessed good taste in choosing the decorations of a drawing-room, selecting a paper of a suitable pattern to match particular furniture, and superintending the fittings of a banqueting-hall. Carlton House was accordingly rendered a perfect gem of a palace under his auspices, and there the king loved to dwell, passing his evenings in elegant orgies and his nights in lascivious enjoyment. The interior of Carlton House was indeed most sumptuous in all its arrangements. The state apartments were fitted up with a grandeur properly chastened by elegance, and convenience and comfort were studied as much as magnificence. The entrance hall was paved with veined marble, the roof being supported by ionic columns from the quarries of Siena. The west anteroom contained many fine portraits by Sir Joshua Reynolds, but the most splendid of all the apartments was the crimson drawing-room, which was decorated in the richest and yet most tasteful manner. The rich draperies, the architectural embellishments, the immense pier-glasses, the chandeliers of cut glass, and the massive furniture, all richly gilt, evinced the state of perfection which the arts and manufactures have attained in this country. Adjoining the crimson drawing-room was the rotunda, the architecture of which was of the Ionic order, every part having been selected from the finest specimens of ancient Greece. The ceiling was painted to represent the sky, and was in the shape of a hemisphere, Another beautiful apartment was the rose satin drawing-room, fitted up after the Chinese fashion, and in the middle of which stood a circular table of Sevres porcelain, the gift of Louis the Eighteenth to the king. Many pictures by the old masters likewise embellished that room. We must also mention the blue velvet room, remarkable for the refined taste displayed in its decorations, and the library golden drawing-room, gothic dining-room, bow-room, conservatory, armory, vestibule, and throne-room, the last of which was fitted up with crimson velvet, and produced when illuminated a superb effect. This rapid glance at the interior of Carlton House may serve to afford the reader a general idea of the splendour of that palace, a splendour almost dazzling to contemplate if we consider it for a few moments in juxtaposition with the deplorable misery of thousands and thousands of cottages, huts, 
and hovels in which so large a number of the working population are forced to dwell but kings and queens care nothing for the condition of their people so long as their selfish desires can be gratified and all their childish whims or extravagant caprices can be fulfilled the industrious millions may rot in their miserable hovels crushed by the weight of that taxation which is so largely augmented by the wants of royalty it is absurd to venerate and adore royalty for royalty is either despicably frivolous or vilely arbitrary and he who admires or adores it is an enemy to his own interests let us however return to the subject of this chapter it was ten at night and carriage after carriage in rapid succession set down the noble and beauteous guests at the entrance of carlton house the palace itself was a blaze of light and the brilliant lustre shed throughout the spacious rooms by the magnificent chandeliers was reflected on the numerous pier-glasses and enhanced by the splendour of the diamonds worn by the ladies upwards of four hundred guests constituting the elite of the fashionable world were there assembled and amongst them moved the king himself undoubtedly a polished gentleman although the few the very few qualifications which he did possess have been greatly exaggerated by writers of the lickspittle school it was a reunion of beauty rank and fashion of the most brilliant description though on a limited scale a full band was in attendance and dancing commenced in the drawing-rooms shortly after ten o'clock amongst the guests was the earl of ellingham conspicuous by his fine form and handsome countenance and more deserving of respect on account of his noble nature than by reason of his noble name for a title is a thing which any monarch can bestow but god alone can create the generous heart and the glorious intellect lady hatfield was likewise there for averse as she was to the assemblies of fashion yet having received a card of invitation to this reunion she could not refuse to obey the royal commands and beautiful she appeared too with diamonds sparkling on her hair and in a dress which enhanced the loveliness of her complexion and set off her graceful figure and rounded bust to their utmost advantage she had accompanied the ladies of a noble family with whom she was intimately acquainted and when the party was presented to the king he contemplated lady hatfield with an admiration which he did not attempt to conceal indeed he addressed himself particularly to her during the few minutes that he remained in conversation with the party to which she belonged but other guests speedily demanded his attention and he moved away not however without bestowing another long and even amorous look upon georgiana who felt relieved when the monarch was no longer near the earl was speedily by lady hatfield's side as soon as she was seated and after a few cursory observations upon the entertainment she said to him have you lately visited mr de medina not for the last two or three days he replied i have been kept much at home by the necessity of preparing materials for the speech which i shall have to make on monday evening next on moving according to the notice which i have already given in the house of lords for certain papers calculated to throw some light on the state of the industrious classes you at last intend to shine as a great statesman arthur said lady hatfield with a smile 
I intend to apply myself to the grand subject of proposing those measures which may ameliorate the condition of millions of human beings, answered the Earl. Do you not remember, Georgiana, that I told you how one whose name I need not mention adjured me to do my duty as a British legislator? And have you forgotten that I explained to you the deep impression which his language on that occasion made upon me? I have forgotten nothing that you ever told me, answered Lady Hatfield, and I am rejoiced to hear that you are now seriously resolved to apply your great talents to so useful a purpose. You must give the necessary orders to enable me to obtain admittance to the House of Lords on Monday evening next, for I would not for worlds be disappointed in hearing your sentiments upon so grand and important a question. If we were not in the light of sister and brother to each other, Georgiana, I should say that I am flattered by your words, remarked the Earl. But as it is, I can only assure you that I receive the expression of your desire to be present in the House of Lords next Monday as a mark of that sincere attachment, that profound friendship which you bear towards me, and which is so entirely reciprocated. And have you reflected upon the conversation which occurred between us the other day relative to Miss Esther de Medina? inquired Georgiana. I have, was the answer but as yet I have arrived at no decision. "'The next time you call upon me, then,' said Lady Hatfield, smiling, and yet subduing a sigh at the same moment, "'I shall repeat to you all the arguments in that respect which I used on the former occasion. Now give me your arm, and we will walk into the next room through the open folding doors, of which I catch a glimpse of some fine paintings.' To the adjacent apartment they accordingly proceeded and inspected several fine pictures, some by the old masters, and others by the most celebrated professors in modern art. While they were thus engaged, the king approached them, greeted the earl with urbane cordiality, and proceeded to point out to Lady Hatfield the best compositions amongst the works which she was admiring. The monarch then proposed that she should visit the armoury, and as, when he had first approached, she had, through deference to royalty, relinquished the arm of the Earl of Ellingham. She was now compelled to accept that of the King. His Majesty, however, implied by his manner that Arthur was to accompany them, and the young nobleman accordingly followed the monarch and Georgiana to the armoury. As they passed through the rooms leading thither, many an envious glance was bent upon Lady Hatfield by the wives and daughters of aristocracy, each of whom would have given ten years of her life to obtain so much favour in the eyes of royalty, although the king was, at this period, upwards of sixty-four years of age. There was, nevertheless, nothing in Lady Hatfield's manner which indicated a consciousness of triumph. Her deportment was modest, yet dignified, and manifesting that ease and self-possession which constitute such important proofs of good breeding. "'This is the first time that I have seen your ladyship at Carlton House,' remarked the king, as they passed slowly on towards the armoury. "'I have never had the honour of visiting your majesty's palace until the present occasion,' was the reply. "'You must not be forgotten in future,' said the king. Then, slightly sinking his voice, he added, "'A palace is the fitting region to be adorned by beauty such as yours.' Lady Hatfield affected not to hear the observation, 
and the Earl of Ellingham actually did not. "'I am an enthusiastic admirer of female loveliness,' continued the king, "'and I envy those who possess the talent of portraying upon canvas the features which are most dear to them. "'By the way,' added his majesty, as if a sudden idea had just struck him, "'I intend to have a Diana painted for my library. "'Beautiful Lady Hatfield, you must be the original of my Diana. "'Grant me that favour. I shall esteem it highly. "'And to-morrow Sir Thomas Lawrence shall call upon your ladyship "'to receive your commands relative to the first sitting.' "'Your Majesty will deign to excuse me,' said Georgiana, "'in a cold but profoundly respectful tone. "'Indeed!' "'I shall receive no apology,' observed the king, laughing. "'But here we are in the armoury, "'and it will give me infinite pleasure to direct your attention "'to those curiosities which are the worthiest of notice.' "'George the Fourth then pointed out to Lady Hatfield and the Earl of Ellingham "'the swords which had belonged respectively to the Chevalier Bayard, "'the great Duke of Marlborough, Louis the Fourteenth, "'that glorious Patriot Hampton, would that we had such a man at the present time, General Moreau, Marshal Luckner, and other heroes. There was also a hunting knife which had belonged to Charles the Twelfth of Sweden, and in addition to these curiosities, there were many military antiquities, especially in costume, all of which the king explained to the lady and the earl. From time to time it struck Lady Hatfield that her royal companion pressed her arm gently in his own, and not in an accidental way, as he addressed himself to her, and he also looked at her more than once in a very peculiar manner. Had he been of a less exalted rank, she would have instantaneously quitted him, but she reflected that it would be an evidence of insane vanity and conceit on her part, were she to interpret in a particular way attentions which after all might have nothing more than a common significancy. She, however, remained cold but respectful, and if the king really meant anything more than the usual courtesy which a gentleman naturally pays to a lady, he received not the slightest encouragement. "'Ellingham,' he said, turning abruptly towards the earl, "'do you carry a snuff-box?' "'I do not, sire,' was the answer." "'That is provoking. I left mine on the porcelain table in the Chinese drawing-room.' The young nobleman understood the hint, bowed and departed to fetch the box, not, however, for a moment suspecting that the king had any sinister motive in sending him away from the armoury, where His Majesty and Georgiana now remained alone together, for that museum had not been thrown open for the inspection of the guests generally. "'Beautiful Lady Hatfield,' said George the Fourth, the moment the folding doors had closed of their own accord behind the earl. "'You will consent to allow Lawrence to copy your sweet countenance for my Diana?' "'Your Majesty will deign to excuse me,' was the cold and now reserved answer, for Georgiana's suspicions, previously excited in a faint degree, had gathered strength from the fact of her royal companion having got rid of the earl in the manner already described. "'No, I will not excuse you, beautiful lady,' exclaimed the king enthusiastically, or with affected enthusiasm. "'Yours is a countenance which, being seen once, leaves behind a desire to behold it again, 
and as I shall have no chance of often viewing the original, I must content myself with the contemplation of the picture. Your Majesty is pleased to compliment me thus, said Georgiana, more coldly than before, and Your Majesty is, of course, privileged. But such words, coming from a less exalted quarter, would be deemed offensive. I am unfortunate in not being able to render myself agreeable to Lady Hatfield, observed George the Fourth, drawing himself proudly up to his full height, for he was really piqued by the lady's manner, he who never sued in vain for a beauteous woman's smiles, but probably reflecting that his haughtiness was little suited either to his previous conduct towards Georgiana or to his aims with regard to her, he immediately unbent again saying in his blandest and most amiable tones, "'Not for worlds would I offend you, charming lady. On the contrary, I would give worlds, did I possess them, to be able to win a single smile from those sweet lips.' Georgiana withdrew her hand from the king's arm, and became red with indignation. "'Forgive me, pardon me,' said the monarch hastily. "'I perceive that you are vexed with me.' and I am very unfortunate in having offended you. Thus speaking, he again proffered his arm, which Lady Hatfield took, saying, Would your majesty deign to conduct me back to the company? At this moment the Earl of Ellingham returned to the armoury, and handed the king his snuff-box. The party then retraced their way to the splendid saloons, the monarch conversing the while in a manner which seemed to indicate that Lady Hatfield had no ground to fear his recurrence to subjects that were disagreeable to her. At length he resigned her to the care of Lord Ellingham, but ere he turned away, he gave her a rapid and significant look, as much as to say, I throw myself upon your generosity not to mention my conduct towards you. The king now withdrew from the apartments thrown open for the reception of the company, and remained absent for nearly an hour. When he returned, his countenance was much flushed, and it was evident that he had been enjoying a glass or two of his favourite curaçao punch, in company with a few boon companions, who had been summoned to attend him in a private room remote from the state saloons. One of the boon companions just alluded to was a certain Sir Philip Warren, an old courtier who was supposed to enjoy the confidence of the king, and who it was rumoured had been the means of extricating his royal master when prince of wales from many a difficulty in financial matters as well as from the danger of exposure and diverse amatory intrigues without any defined official position about the person of the king sir philip was nevertheless a very important individual in the royal household one of those useful but mysterious agents who while enjoying the reputation of men of honour are in reality the means by which the dirty work of palaces is accomplished. In appearance, Sir Philip Warren was a stout, red-faced, good-humoured-looking man, and not the least of those qualifications which rendered him so especial a favourite with the king was the aristocratic faculty that he possessed of taking his three bottles after dinner without seeming to have imbibed anything stronger than water. Such was the courtier who, accosting the Earl of Ellingham shortly after the King's return to the drawing-rooms, drew that nobleman aside, with an intimation that he wished to say a few words to him in private. Taking the Earl's arm, Sir Philip Warren led him away from the brilliantly lighted saloons, 
and introduced the nobleman into the blue velvet closet, a small but elegantly decorated room, where a single lamp was burning upon the table. "'His Majesty has been speaking to me concerning your lordship,' said Sir Philip Warren, when Arthur and himself were seated alone together in the closet. "'Indeed, our royal master has been graciously pleased to intimate that he is much prepossessed in your favour. The earl bowed a cold recognition of the compliment, for he was far too enlightened a man not to feel disgust at the sycophantic language in which that compliment was conveyed, and he was likewise convinced that there was some ulterior object in view. "'A young nobleman such as your lordship may rise to the highest offices in the state by means of the royal favour, continued Sir Philip. "'Your talents are known to be great.' and your influence in the House of Lords is consequently extensive. But His Majesty regrets to learn that your Lordship seems inclined to proclaim opinions so far in advance of the spirit of the age as to be dangerous to the institutions of the country, those institutions which the wisdom of our ancestors devised, and which the experience of ages has consecrated. Really, Sir Philip Warren, said the Earl, unfeignedly surprised at this address i am at a loss to conceive wherefore you should seek to lead me into a political discussion on such an occasion as the present i will explain myself returned the courtier his majesty retired just now with a few of his faithful servants amongst whom i have the honour to be included to partake of a little refreshment and while we were thus engaged, His Majesty made an observation highly in favour of yourself. A nobleman present thereupon informed His Majesty that your Lordship had placed a certain notice upon the books of the house of which your Lordship is so distinguished an ornament. The nature of that notice is displeasing to His Majesty, who is graciously pleased to think that the common people already consider themselves of far greater importance than they really are. If, sir, by the contemptuous phrase, the common people, you mean that enlightened and respectable body, the working classes, exclaimed the earl indignantly, I must beg to declare that I differ totally from the opinion which his majesty has expressed concerning them. Well, well, my dear earl, said Sir Philip, in a conciliatory tone, every one has a right to his own opinion, we are aware of that fact. But permit me to represent to you that you will gain no personal advantage by espousing the cause of the masses. I seek no personal advantage, cried Arthur, with an impatient gesture indicative of his desire to terminate the interview at once. I am not putting myself forward as a factious demagogue. I seek not the honours of a democratic championship. But this I intend and contemplate, Sir Philip Warren to exert all my energies, use all the little influence I may possess, and devote any amount of talent which God has given me, for the purpose of directing the attention of the legislature to the neglected, oppressed, and impoverished condition of that fine English people which constitutes the pillar of the state. By adopting such a course, my lord, remonstrated Sir Philip, you will offend His Majesty, who is now so well disposed towards you, that were you inclined to enter his service in the sphere of diplomacy, your wishes might be complied with at once. Indeed, 
the post of envoy plenipotentiary to the important grand duchy of castelcicala is at this moment vacant and if your lordship in one word sir philip warren interrupted the earl of ellingham rising from his seat you are desirous to tempt me into a compromise wherefore do you not frankly explain yourself at once and say withdraw your notice from the books of the house of lords and depart as ambassador to the court of angelo grand duke of castelcicala to which i should immediately reply no possible reward which an earthly monarch can give should induce me to abandon that task which a sense of duty has imposed upon me sir philip warren was astonished at the firmness and boldness with which the earl spoke for such manly independence was quite unusual in the atmosphere of a corrupt court and venal political world the fact was that sir philip had undertaken the task of effecting the desired compromise with the earl the king had specially entrusted the matter to him and the courtier trembled at the idea of being compelled to report the total failure of the negotiation to his royal master he was therefore cruelly embarrassed and knew not what course to adopt but suddenly an idea struck him for he perceived that the earl was not a man to be tempted by reward but he thought that the nobleman might perhaps be overcome by the powers of eloquent reasoning my dear earl he accordingly said you are too honourable and too highly principled a statesman not to yield to conviction grant me in common justice one favour i ask it in the name of his majesty speak exclaimed arthur resuming his chair to show that he was prepared to listen with courteous attention the prime minister is present at the reunion this evening said sir philip will you hear any argument which he may address to you upon the subject of your notice for next monday night and consider whatever may pass between you to be strictly confidential i should be unreasonable to refuse to listen to any observations which so high a functionary as the prime minister may address to me answered the earl and i shall consider our interview to be private and confidential on condition that no insult be offered to me in the shape of temptation or promise of reward if it can be shown by fair argument that i am wrong in pursuing the course which i have adopted i will yield to conviction but i shall spurn with contempt and indignation any other means that may be adopted to induce me to withdraw my notice from the books of the house the interview shall take place upon the condition your lordship has stipulated be kind enough to wait my return with the prime minister sir philip warren then withdrew closing the door behind him but scarcely had he left the blue velvet closet when the lamp upon the table suddenly grew dim and in a few moments the light expired altogether doubtless through lack of oil leaving the room in total darkness the earl was uncertain how to act and while he was still deliberating with himself whether to leave the closet in search of a servant to procure another light or await the return of sir philip warren the door opened the room is in darkness sire immediately said a female voice which the Earl of Ellingham recognised to be that of Lady Hatfield. "'I pledge you my royal word that I was ignorant of the fact when I conducted you hither,' returned the King. "'But pray enter, beauteous lady. We may at all events converse at our ease for a few minutes.' And to the amazement of the Earl, 
Georgiana complied with the king's request, accompanying his majesty into that dark room, the door of which was immediately closed. Indeed, so astounded, so shocked was Arthur by this incident, that he sat motionless and speechless in his chair at the further extremity of the apartment. "'My dearest Lady Hatfield,' said the king, "'I thank you most sincerely for having thrown aside that chilling, freezing manner which you maintained in the early part of the evening, when I sought to make you understand the profound admiration with which your beauty has inspired me. How unfortunate are princes! They cannot obey the dictates of their hearts. They dare not bestow their hand where their affections are engaged.' but society is justly lenient in their behalf, and thus the lady who becomes a monarch's favourite is regarded with envy and respect, and not with contumely or reproach. But no lady who entertains the slightest feeling of self-respect, observed Lady Hatfield in a low and tremulous tone, will abandon herself in a moment even to a monarch. There must be proofs of real attachment on his side, "'Granted, beauteous Georgiana,' interrupted the king impatiently. "'Show me how I can demonstrate my affection towards yourself. "'Ask me any boon which I have the power to grant, and which I dare accord.' "'Oh, if your majesty would only fulfil this pledge!' exclaimed Lady Hatfield joyfully. "'Do you doubt me?' demanded George the Fourth. "'Put me to the test, I say, and you shall be convinced of my readiness.' my anxiety to prove how deeply I am attached to you, although the impression made on my heart be so sudden. Sire, resumed Lady Hatfield, I shall be so bold as to take your majesty at your word. Tomorrow your majesty will receive a certain paper, and I warn your majesty beforehand that its contents will be most singular. I shall ask no further explanations than you may choose to give, "'Beauteous Georgiana,' observed the king. "'But when I receive the paper, what next do you require?' "'That your majesty shall affix to it your royal signature, "'and likewise direct your majesty's secretary of state "'for the home department to countersign it,' responded Lady Hatfield. "'This being done, the document must be returned to me. "'All that you have stipulated shall be carried into effect,' said the king. "'Then,' Sinking his voice and assuming a tender tone, he added, "'But will there be room for me to hope, sweet lady? "'Your Majesty must remember the observation I made ere now,' interrupted Georgiana. "'Before a woman whose affection is really worthy of being possessed "'can consent to surrender herself entirely, "'even to one so highly placed as you, sire, "'her heart must be won by kindnesses shown.' by proofs of attachment given. "'I accept the condition implied, charming Georgiana,' exclaimed the king. "'You imagine that I am now influenced by a sudden caprice, that the love which I bear for you is the fantasy of a moment. Well, I will convince you to the contrary, and when I shall have proved to you that my passion survives the passing hour, then, then, sweet lady, you will not suffer me to hope in vain. Come,' Let us return to the drawing-room, and believe me when I declare that you have made me supremely happy. But ere we again seek that society where a cold ceremony must keep us under a rigid restraint, 
allow me to seal upon your lips that pledge for which i have already given my royal word no sire not now not yet cried lady hatfield in a tone which showed that she felt herself to be in a position to dictate to her regal admirer cruel charmer said the king but i suppose you must be permitted to have your own way send me the paper to-morrow let it be addressed to me under cover to sir philip warren and you shall see by the haste with which it will be returned to you that i shall count every minute an hour and reckon every day to be a year until that happy moment comes when you will be wholly and solely mine george the fourth then opened the door and led georgiana away from the room in which this singular scene had taken place but what of the earl of ellingham so completely stunned and stupefied was he by all that had occurred that he never moved a muscle and retained his very breath suspended while his ears drank in every word that passed between the king and lady hatfield thus did he become an unwilling and unintentional listener to a discourse which created the most painful emotions in his breast was it possible that the lady hatfield whom he looked upon as the very personification of virtue in spite of the terrible misfortune which had deprived her of her chastity was it possible that she whose soul he had imagined to be so pure though dwelling in a body polluted by the ravisher was it possible that she had already suffered herself to be dazzled by the delusive overtures of royalty and was she seriously about to resign herself to the king's arms to become the mistress of that regal debauchee of sixty-four my god thought the earl i who had such an exalted opinion of female virtue then he remembered that portion of the conversation which had turned upon the document lady hatfield was to send to the king for his royal signature and which she had prepared him to find of a most singular character of what nature could that document be conjecture was vain and useless the first impulse of the earl was to inform lady hatfield that he had overheard her conversation with the king and conjure her to reflect seriously ere she committed a fatal step of which she would assuredly have to repent for the remainder of her life but second thoughts convinced him that he must retain profoundly secret the fact of his acquaintance with the understanding existing between georgiana and the monarch for in confessing himself to have been an eavesdropper he should have to blush in the presence of one whom he was to take to task he saw it would be difficult to make the lady believe that he himself was so stupefied by her conduct as to be totally unable to declare his presence in a room where a private conversation was in progress and she would naturally upbraid him he thought for what might be looked upon as a proof of mean and contemptible curiosity on his part although as the reader is aware he was indeed animated by no such vile sentiment moreover in resigning all claim to her hand or rather in recognising the impossibility of contracting an alliance with a woman whom his brother had ravished the earl had ceased to enjoy any right to advise or control her in respect to her moral conduct and it now struck him that painfully situated as she was unable to become the wife of any honourable and confiding man she had accepted overtures which could render her a monarch's mistress in a word he conceived that he should best consult her happiness as matters stood 
by affecting a complete ignorance of the understanding so suddenly established between herself and George the Fourth. Having come to this determination, he quitted the blue velvet closet, and was retracing his way to the scene of brilliant gaiety when he encountered Sir Philip Warren in the corridor. "'I searched everywhere for the minister and was unable to find him,' said the courtier. "'At last, upon making inquiries, I learnt that he had taken his departure.' "'I am not sorry that it is so,' returned the Earl of Ellingham, "'for I feel convinced that no argument, although I should have listened to it as a matter of courtesy, could deter me from advocating the cause of the working classes.' With these words, the nobleman bowed coldly to Sir Philip Warren, and passed on to the state apartments, in one of which he found Lady Hatfield seated with the friends in whose company she had arrived at the entertainment. Her manner was calm and collected, and if there were any change, it was in the slight, the very slight, smile of triumph which played upon her lips. At least it struck the Earl that such an expression her rosy mouth wore, as he approached her, but it disappeared as she began to converse with him, and he so subdued his own feelings that she did not observe anything to lead her to suppose that he was aware of her understanding with the king. Precisely at midnight the supper-rooms were thrown open, and a magnificent banquet was served up. We need scarcely say that the most costly wines, the most expensive luxuries, and every delicacy that gold could procure, appeared upon the board, which absolutely groaned beneath the weight of massive plate, superb porcelain, and brilliant crystal. The festivity was kept up until a late hour. Indeed, it was past two in the morning before the company began to separate. But when the Earl of Ellingham was once more at home, and had retired to his chamber, sleep would not visit his eyes, fatigued though he were. The scene which had occurred in the blue velvet closet was so impressed upon his mind that he could not divert his thoughts into another channel. It was not that he was jealous of Lady Hatfield. No, circumstances had changed his love for her into a sincere and deeply rooted friendship, but he felt disappointed. He felt deceived in the estimate he had formed of her character. He had believed her to be possessed of a mind too strong to be dazzled by the splendours of royalty, and to yield herself up to a man whom it was impossible for her to love merely for the sake of becoming a king's mistress. Had George the Fourth been estimable on account of character, amiable in disposition, and worthy of admiration as a sovereign, the Earl thought that there would in this case have been a shadow, but even then only a shadow, of an excuse for the conduct of Georgiana. The reverse was, however, the precise fact, for the king was notoriously a hardened profligate, a confirmed debauchee, a disgusting voluptuary, and an unprincipled monarch. In a word, such a man as a refined and strong-minded woman would look upon with abhorrence. So thought Lord Ellingham, and when he recalled to memory the frightful behaviour of George the Fourth towards the unhappy Caroline, against whom his vile agents trumped up the most unfounded accusations, and who was hunted to death by the bloodthirsty instruments of a hellish system of persecution. When the Earl reflected upon all this, his amazement at the conduct of Lady Hatfield increased almost to horror. At length his thoughts wandered to Esther de Medina, 
or rather the beautiful jewess became mixed up with them for it was impossible that the scene in the blue velvet closet could be entirely banished from his mind and as he pondered upon her innocence her artlessness her amiable qualities his confidence in women revived and he exclaimed aloud as he lay in his sumptuous couch oh wherefore do i delay securing to myself the possession of such a treasure yes esther dearest esther thou shalt be mine end of section one hundred and three